0: Thanks again for joining us. This is the third episode in this mini-series on the Holy Sacrament of Matrimony. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, fill us, sanctify us, ignite our faith, hope, and charity, that we be truly the instruments that you desire for us to be. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In our previous episode, we spoke much about the importance of the indissolubility of marriage and the good of the sacrament. That is the third of the three goods of the sacrament of marriage. We spoke also about the theology. Of the sacrament concerning form and matter, both being the words of consent, as well as the ministers and the recipients. Both the ministers and the recipients are the man and the woman giving and administering the sacrament to each other, receiving the sacrament from each other. A very unique and beautiful part of this holy sacrament. We spoke most certainly about the indissolubility of that sacrament. Now, We want to begin moving towards speaking of the three goods of matrimony. Already we have mentioned and somewhat discussed this, but I want to do so on a different plane. I want to speak more fully about covenantal relationship, and therefore largely this episode will be breaking open that understanding so that we have a firm grasp as to what it is, and then applying that to the three goods in a deeper way of matrimony. Hopefully, this will kind of parallel with what we've already discussed in speaking about the contractual elements to holy matrimony. I want to now speak about the covenantal elements of matrimony. Now, these don't perfectly... Uh, separate in that you've already heard me mention a couple of times in both the first and the second episode about covenantal elements in what we were discussing and describing. So I don't want to suggest that they're 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 two very distinct and always separated things. Rather, there is much overlap in them, and I want us to know that. I want us to see that overlap. We shouldn't think about these things so much as two very different planes, all kind of moving or traveling at the same time. Rather, there is much. Uh, overlap and much much harmony between the two, I try to describe them differently so that we have a better grasp of both realities, the contractual and the covenantal realities of holy matrimony. But the reality is that it is one matrimony, it is one theology, it is one sacrament, it is one reality. as As I have mentioned briefly, contract can always kind of be understood within the context of covenant. But, as I said, I find it better for us, or more, or perhaps clearer for us, to be able to discuss these things with some kind of, at least, mental separation. Concerning covenant. This is a massive discussion, all on its own. Because we find covenant relationship throughout all of history, literally from the early chapters of the first book of Genesis to the latest chapters of the last book of Revelation. All throughout Scripture, we find the theme of covenantal relationship. Again, just in case you have forgotten, when you think of covenant relationship, you should think two becoming one. You should think blood bond. You should think something that lasts. You should think something that is uh, forming a family or one entity as a result of the covenant being formed. Marriage is certainly something that will help us to understand covenant. And certainly understanding covenant will help us to better understand marriage. In the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 24, it says, quote, therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh, end quote. This is describing marriage. This is also describing a covenant relationship. We see the importance of covenant relationship throughout all of Scripture, as I said. We see it in terms of the first uh, story of creation. We see it in terms of Noah, as well as Abraham, as well as Moses, as well as King David, and even others, some argue, and eventually Christ. And so I'm not going to spend an excessive amount of time trying to explain throughout all of salvation history, all of the covenantal realities that we find in Old Testament as well as New but I do want to at least describe it enough and read a couple of passages that help us to understand its importance and how it all is pointing to the covenant relationship that Christ has established by his blood. That's the goal. So, a covenant relationship has to do with a vow, a kind of vowing to another. Again, perhaps you should already recognize a similarity between that and marriage because we have two parties vowing consenting to each other, form and matter. It is the consent, it is vowing to each other to cherish, to, uh, to to give of oneself until death do you part. We find this at the very beginning. If you remember, it is God who creates and God who rests on the seventh day. He sees after every day, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then after the sixth day, he sees it is very good. And he rests on the seventh day. We can understand the word seven. From Hebrew, meaning oath, it's a rather important number, and it's a rather important concept. God oaths himself in his rest on the seventh day to creation. This distinguishes our God, the one true and only God, to be different from the God of the deists. If you've ever come across a deist or had a conversation with them, then you'd be familiar that they believe in a false god, they're wrong, but they believe in uh, the idea that God is this watchmaker is oftentimes the analogy used. It is, in other words, like a person, or or excuse me, is like a, uh, a watchmaker who forms, makes all of the parts, puts them together, makes the watch work, and then sets it aside. The watch is already working. It works on its own. It does what it wants to. No longer is God necessary in operating or fixing or polishing the watch. So like a watchmaker makes a watch and then sets it aside and goes to make some other watch. This is what a deist understanding of reality is. That God has created us and he has formed us. They believe in God, but they don't believe in the personal, imminent transcendent, all-holy, good, and perfect God that loves us and longs to have a true relationship with us. Rather, they believe in a God that sets us apart and then continues on with whatever he wants to do next. Maybe he wants to make another universe. Maybe he wants to make um, a universe uh, that is not built of matter or something of the sort. He does whatever he wants to. This is the deistic concept of God. It is false, of course. Our God desires a relationship with us. In fact, a covenantal relationship. And a relationship built on an oath. A a relationship built with obligations. A a relationship that is so intimate where two are becoming one. God calls us to be his own children, his own family, his his own. To share, in fact, even in his own life. That's what eternal life is. To share and to live the life of God. To have that within us. So, in creation, God oaths himself To creation. He's with us. He's near us. He seeks and loves and desires us. He pursues us. That is very different. So, this creation, unfortunately, is broken by our sins. And so, God seeks to, in his perfect mercy and generosity, establish another covenant relationship with us to make us his again, to overcome that which separates us, which is sin. And so, he establishes a relationship through a covenant by way of Noah. We have the flood. And then we have 40 days and 40 nights of water that washes away all of the sins. It separates the just, that is Noah and his family, from the unjust, all of the sinners. It is the water that does that. And it's the water that washes away all of those unjust and therefore purifies the world. obviously, this is pointing us to what enters us into the everlasting covenant established by Christ. That is baptism. Through the waters of baptism, again, an efficacious sign. It's not just a symbol. It's not just a sign. It's not just a photo opportunity, but something that truly has effect. Then we find in this sacrament of baptism, our entrance, our birth into the family of God, because it is God who separates us from our sins through this water and the Holy Spirit. It is also the sins that we have as a result of original sin, and if we are getting uh, baptized in as an adult, then also our own individual sins, that are all cleansed from our soul. That which separates us from God is wiped away as a result of the waters of baptism. So the covenant relationship, we find it has a sign, the rainbow, that God would not destroy the world in this way with a flood again. And then, Man sins, breaks this covenant relationship, destroys our obligations or fails to carry, let's say, our weight and our obligations and to give God the due honor that we should, the gratitude, and to seek and pursue and to to worship him in the way that he desires. And so God, in his good mercy, seeks to establish another relationship, another covenant, another blood bond, to be, to elevate, to unite us with him. Abraham. Abraham is... Such a faithful man who's willing to give even his own son as a sacrifice for the sake of obeying God in all things because he knows he has faith and he firmly trusts that God will abide by his promises another esta- uh, sac- excuse me another covenant is established we have circumcision now how do you get into the family of God? you are circumcised into the chosen people of God you are circumcised that as many of the New Testament scriptures makes clear is a foreshadowing of Baptism, which is our entrance into the covenant relationship with God that Christ has established for us. But this sacrament relationship is, or excuse me, this covenantal relationship is broken. And so God seeks to establish another relationship, and that is with Moses. Again, we have water. This Red Sea is split in two. Moses and the Israelites, God's chosen people, walk through it. And then the the, the army, the army of Pharaoh, the Egyptians that are chasing them, are all washed away and destroyed. The slavery of the Egyptians, to the Egyptians, of the Israelites, is broken, is destroyed as a result of crossing the Red Sea. As a result of what God has done in leading them out of Egypt. Likewise, Christ leads us out of the slavery to sin, our slavery that we have, by way of baptism. And then, of course, we also see, if we would have gone right before this instance of crossing the Red Sea, that it is the Passover meal. It is when all of the Israelites in their own homes mark, with a sacrifice of a lamb, the blood of that lamb mark the doorway, eat the flesh of that lamb, and as a result, the angel of death passes over those house, houses marked with, in obedience, the blood of the lamb, and kills the firstborn of all of the homes that do not have this marking, or are not sacrificing that lamb. Of course, Christ is the new lamb. He is the ultimate, perfect lamb of God who has sacrificed his blood, marks our souls. The angel of death, that is condemnation, hell, eternal fire, passes over those who are marked by the blood of the lamb. Of Christ. How do we enter into and have this marking on us? Baptism. And then the other six sacraments, specifically the Eucharist, which is the highest of them. So we see that the covenant relationships. They're pointing us to the sacraments. We see the covenant relationships of the Old Testament pointing us to the ultimate, everlasting, and new covenant relationship. Let us prove that here by reading the prophets. What are the prophets doing? They're seeking for the conversion of the people that are falling away. The God's chosen people, the Israelites, falling away from God. They're preparing them for a coming destruction if they do not turn and repent. And they're preparing them for the coming Messiah. They want the people to be able to recognize the Messiah when he comes. And so they try to help them. I want to specifically key in on that issue. The Israelites are preparing for Christ excuse me, the prophets are preparing the Israelites for the coming of Christ. Isaiah 54, 5, quote, For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth, end quote. That right there clearly is talking about a covenant relationship that God is seeking with the people is like a marriage. Your husband is your maker. Your husband is your maker, God seeks to have such an intimate relationship. Now, notice, I'm going to continue to use this language because it is the language that scriptures are using. It is the language that the church and sacred tradition has used. Speaking of the bride, the church of Christ being the bride of Christ. But that might make some people question, well, I'm a dude. Why would I be a a spouse of Christ? That doesn't make any sense. Obviously, one man and one woman, that is according to nature and that is moral, not all of us being one bride. I can't be a bride. I'm a dude. Understand. Our understanding, our knowledge, our intellect, it is all very weak. It is all very limited. When we speak of marriage between a man and a woman, specifically in relation to the church, in Christ who is the groom, and the church who is the bride... We're speaking about how we are all entirely given over to Christ. We are speaking about how what heaven is, is us belonging fully to him. We are speaking about the reality that God seeks to have with us, which is so intimate, so passionate, so true, so loving, so good, and so long-term and that the only thing that we have to compare is a groom and a bride, is a spouse, is a matrimony. And so it helps us to understand the kind of intimacy, the kind of relationship, the kind of love, the kind of uh, passion that we should have for God to be entirely belonging to God. That's what we mean. So don't get so fixated on the language that you miss the utter beautiful reality that God wants with us. He wants us to be exclusively his, to not belong to the world, to not belong to certain attachments, to not belong to our past sins, but to, long, to belong to him alone. And this will perfectly happen with every human person that enters into the glories of heaven to God. Every human person will be united by God, the love of God in us, and belong entirely and fully and perfectly to God. And because we all belong to him, we also, in a sense, will be belonging to each other through him and in him. Okay, I hope that helps to understand, uh, to to explain kind of what we mean when we continue to bring up this idea of the relationship between the church and Christ. The prophet Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, quote, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, And I showed myself their master, says the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it upon their, their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each man teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me for the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. End quote pointing us to the relationship that God seeks to have with us notice he doesn't want to have a master slave relationship we are not muslims we are not islamic uh, religious mindseted people we believe that our god loves us became one of us seeks to have a intimate matrimonial like relationship built on love with us that's what god seeks not a master and a slave Not a deistic, separated, unconcerned God, but rather one who intimately seeks not only to be with us, but actually to dwell within us. Only matrimonial language. Only when we understand consummation and and true uh, physical and, 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 and spiritual and emotional intercourse between a man and a woman, all in love, built on God's work, in giving the sacrament of matrimony, this matrimonial bond between them, only then do we begin to understand just a remote uh, piece of what God seeks to have with us and what he is promising those who remain faithful that they will have in heaven. New covenant will be everlasting. Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 16, 59 through 60. For thus says the Lord God, quote, I will also do with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath by breaking the covenant. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you, End quote. Now, let us start looking at some of the words of our Lord, the Lords of the New Testament, that help us to better understand what Christ has established with us, for us. Matthew Chapter 26, 26 through 28, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, quote, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the chalice and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Notice these words sound very similar to the words that we have in Mass every day. The priest takes the chalice after having consecrated the bread into the body and blood of our Lord. Now the chalice, wine, he takes that and he consecrates that with the words of institution. And these words of consecration or of institution as they can be called. Quote, take this all of you and drink from it. This is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant, etc., etc. The blood of the new and everlasting covenant. What covenant? The covenant that Christ has established by his own blood on the cross. It's everlasting because his blood is infinitely valuable, because it is God who has taken on human nature. Jesus is not a human person. He is not like us, entirely weak and broken down. He is a divine person who is in every way like us in his human nature, except for sin. He is like us in every way except for sin, but he is a divine person with two natures, and because he is divine nature, in other words, His nature is identical, the exact same as God the Father and God the Son, because it is one God, one nature, one will, but the second person of the Holy Trinity has taken on human nature, and these natures are perfect and absolute. In other words, he's not part man and part God. He's not a demigod, like he's not Hercules or something of the sort, but he is fully man. And that's why we can say he is like us in all things because of his nature. He is like us in all things, but sin. But he is God entirely. And these natures are distinct. They're not mixed. It's not a mutt. At the same time, they are perfect and full. So he's 100% man, 100% God, one divine person, the second person of the Holy Trinity, with two natures, perfectly united. Okay, this is what Christ seeks to establish with us. And the way that we can understand this everlasting covenant, as the scriptures make very clear, is a marriage. Let us see in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 9. And the angel said to me, quote, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. End quote. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, let us think back as well. What do we hear in Mass? After the consecration, when the priest holds up the host, once again, those two pieces, if you remember, he breaks the host. We have the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those called to his, and then, excuse me, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, etc. Breaks the host. He puts a piece of the host into the chalice. This represents the resurrection, the body, the, the body and the blood of our Lord that comes together, his glorified body. Once again, obviously, reunited with the blood, the glorified blood of our Lord at the resurrection. So both body and blood. It also is a profession to us that when we receive the body, we are receiving the body, the blood, the soul, and divinity of Christ. We're not just receiving a piece of Christ. We're not just receiving like the fingernail of Christ or something of the sort. We are receiving his body, his blood, his soul, and divinity, all Christ. And then in the receiving of the blood... We are receiving his body, the blood, the soul, and divinity. Not just a drop of his blood, not just something that was in his veins or something. We are receiving his glorified body, blood, soul, and divinity. So, in other words, emphasizing that they are one. Secondly, the priest then puts both of the hosts together on the paten, and he holds up the host put together. Some of them do. In the past, it was always done this way. Who knows? I don't think it's absolutely necessary that it's held like this, um, or at least many priests don't hold it like this. Regardless, according to the past, you would hold the the both halves, the left and the right, together, once again reunited, again as symbol of the uh, of our Lord, who is risen. In addition to this, though, I think particularly when we see the right and the left both together. But then with this break down the middle, it is, in a sense, calling out towards Revelation, where we hear that, where John sees the Lamb standing as if slain. Standing as if slain. Who is that? It's our risen Lord. He is the Lamb of God. We know that. He must be the Lamb of God. He must be a lamb. He must be a sacrifice because otherwise there is no new and everlasting covenant established upon the blood of this sacrifice. There is no us being led out of slavery and eternal condemnation by way of the blood of the Lamb being put onto our souls, marking us. There is no feasting on the flesh of the Lamb if Christ is not the Lamb of God who gives us his body and his blood, his soul and divinity for the sake of our salvation, for the sake of the glorification of God, the Father. So we have uh, all of this taking place, all of this, hopefully, some of this, even just a tiny bit of this, some uh, can be forms of, of, of reflection in these moments during Mass to help beautify and help you invest more into what is occurring. But the priest then holds those that, that, that host up, reunited in a sense, standing as if slain. And he says, Blessed are those who are called to the supper of the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those who are called to the supper of the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Christ. The supper of the Lamb? What we see here, this is a quote from Revelation, and Revelation makes it clear it is a marriage supper of the Lamb. Whose marriage? The Lamb of God with his church, the bride. Christ. And it is, is the spouse of the bride. We see this over and over again in the book of Revelation. Excuse me. No, we see this in the book of Revelation, but we see this also in the book of Ephesians and other writings within scripture that make this clear. And so John is is, dim, is explaining to us, he's expressing, what does heaven look like? A covenantal relationship, a new and everlasting covenantal relationship, a marriage. That's what heaven is. It is us being uniquely, intimate, exclusively, united to Christ in such a perfect, full, complete everlasting way. It will not be broken. It cannot be severed. It is only with him because it is a monogamous marriage. Christ does not have, as I said, many brides. He has one bride, Holy Mother Church. We are all united in him and through him and to him by the power of the Holy Spirit and the greater glory of God the Father. So we need to understand the holy matrimony. We need to understand covenant relationship. Why? Because a the the sacrament of matrimony here and now, that's what it's representing. That's what it's an image of. That's what it's to be. So how much weight does a man have and how much weight does a woman have when it comes to their roles and their obligations when it comes to marriage? A lot. You're supposed to remind all of us of what heaven will be like when we are all bound together in communion of Holy Mother Church, the Bride of Christ, and united intimately and perfectly to Christ forever after. That's the only bliss and perfect peace and joy that we will ever have as humans. We have been made for God. Literally anything less than that is hell. We have been made for God. Anything less than that is hell. Nothing else will do. And God seeks to give us all of himself. He will not hold back. He will not give us only something, only some minor piece. He wants to be bound together with us, intimately giving. Remember, love, it is all out. It is full, it is entire. God is perfect love. Our love is imperfect. Our love is weak. That's why we will help somebody and then we won't help somebody. We'll commit, but we won't commit too much. We'll love somebody, but we don't want to love them too much because of we become vulnerable. They can hurt us more and more the more that we love them. God is willing to be hurt so much that he goes to the cross, dead, by his own people that he seeks to save, by his blood, because he loves us entirely. He makes himself utterly vulnerable by becoming man, an infant, in the manger, in Bethlehem. And then he grows and allows himself to become, to be the Lamb of God whose blood is shed on the cross all for the sake of our salvation. Not to give us a piece of himself, but to give us himself entirely, so that we live not our own natural lives, but Christ who lives in us, that we live eternal life, God's life. Okay. Perhaps I am beating a dead horse at this point, but uh, running that risk, I will continue just a little bit more on the same theme. Again, who is the bride of the Lamb? Let us read, as I mentioned, these verses that we will continue to read every every episode. Ephesians chapter 5, 20 through, 22. We'll just read through 25 here. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. The Lamb of God is married. The, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We know Christ is the Lamb. He's the head of the church. This is an image of how husbands are to the head of their spouses, the wives his body the church is his body and is himself its savior as the church is subject to the to christ so let wives also be subject in everything to their husbands husbands love your wives as christ loved the church and gave himself up for her etc etc the bride is the holy catholic church those in the new and everlasting covenant by way of the sacraments new covenant relationship just as a side note if you translate or seek to translate the word testamentum from Latin, then you'll see that it doesn't only translate to testament, but it also translates to covenant. And so when we speak of novus testamentum, instead of understanding that to be New Testament, as we commonly translate it, you can understand that to be New Covenant. So we have the scriptures themselves are broken up, Old Covenant, New Covenant. Old, imperfect, not everlasting covenants, broken by us, humans, over and over again established by God at creation, and then again by Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, etc. And then we have the new and everlasting covenant, written in the books, or demonstrated and explained to us so clearly in the books of the New Testament or New Covenant. The Eucharist is the marriage supper on earth. How do we engage? How do we renew ourselves? How do we give of ourselves so intimately? How do we consummate? The actual covenant relationship that we have with Christ, our groom, Holy Eucharist. Is it not the groom giving to his church for the sake of her good, himself, his life, his fertility, his body, his blood, himself entire? See, therefore, when we speak of the Eucharist in a sense, we can analogously some ways understand a type of marital conjugal act between a groom and a a, a bride. It is the man giving of himself and generating or producing in the woman something of life. In that God gives us himself, which is something that nurtures us and strengthens us and binds us more intimately to him. it strengthens our unity and community, community in the church and unity as the church to Christ. All of this occurs every time we receive the Eucharist and so much more, of course. The point, though, that I want to make is understanding that we have a covenant relationship, that Christ is already established by his blood with the church. Now, we can be out of communion with the church and through immortal sin, and therefore, obviously, not be in union with Christ. But so long as we are in the state of grace, bound to the church, we are absolutely in this new and everlasting covenant, living members of this new and everlasting covenant, enjoying the fruits and the realities that come as a result of this new and everlasting covenant between us and Christ. And we consummate and reconsummate, we renew, we instill and further deepen and make more profound our union with Christ, By way of Holy Eucharist, the Lamb giving himself for us. So we see elements of sacrifice. We see elements of food. We see elements as well of this this self-giving consummation, hopefully, that all should be helping us to better understand a marriage. We have this mutual giving of each other, each other's bodies, each other's minds, each other's hearts, each other's loves, each other's time, each other's talents, all to complement each other, to become one, to build this environment of love for the sake of producing life, the greatest and most important good of matrimony, but then also for the unity of the spouses, and uh, etc., and the indissolubility. Okay, therefore, hopefully some things are kind of coming together as we understand covenantal relationships. A Catholic and sacramental marriage is a particular kind of participation in the New and Everlasting Covenant because it is an image of this covenant. Every man and every woman, as they profess before Holy Mother Church by the help of God and are bound to each other in the sacrament of matrimony by God, they are seeking to live as an image of the love between Christ and His Holy Church. The image of Christ and His Church Again, Ephesians chapter 21, verses, uh, excuse me, verses 21 through 33. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Do you consider what you're doing to be something that demonstrates your reverence for Christ as a married man or as a married woman? Is your submission as a woman to your spouse, recognition of Christ and reverence for him? What about men? Do you cherish your wives Speak to your wives, communicate well with your wives, help them to understand that they are truly appreciated, that you have no eyes for others, but only them. And you do so out of reverence for Christ? Or do you fail to do so? Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. As the church is subject to Christ, so let wives also be subject in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I mean in reference to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Because a marriage is an image of Christ and the bride, it is centered on love. Love is to will the good for the other. That is, it is to give of oneself for the other. True love is a choice. It's not an emotion. True love is born out of our free will, which is what we have as a result of being made in the image and likeness of God. Dogs aren't made in the image and likeness of God. They can't choose to love. They can be loyal according to their instinct and all of that, of course, but that is very different from knowing, from loving, by way of reason and by way of free will. That is what we are able to do that they cannot, along with other things. Therefore, in understanding this, then, no, this idea of we fell out of love, So I'm gonna go find myself another spouse. I'm gonna go find somebody I get along with better. I'm gonna go find somebody that's not near as selfish. I'm gonna go find somebody that I don't need to work on or make better or help out, et cetera. All of that is a bunch of baloney. Once you're married, you are married. Do the best that you can. There are certain issues or situations like physical abuse, maybe even other kinds of abuse, et cetera, as well as issues uh, uh, of, of adultery that can cause a separation temporarily or indefinitely, depending on the situation, find a priest that will help you to navigate those difficult waters. And hopefully that never happens, but continue to pray with your spouse and for your spouse to the best that you can. Continue to work for the healing of your marriage. Make sure you realize that how you live as a spouse is by and large how you demonstrate your reverence for Christ. Not the only way, but largely it is. How you Help and love and cherish your spouse, serve your spouse, fulfill the obligations, right to bed, right to board, et cetera, that you have in your marriage is largely how you will be judged at the end of this life. So know that. That doesn't mean that your marriage will be perfect. It doesn't mean that your spouse will ever outgrow his lack of faith or his lack of love or his lack of et cetera. It means that the more that you work, the more you are fulfilling your part of the covenant. Your part of the relationship, and the more that you do that, the more you demonstrate Christ's self-sacrificial love, which is your obligation. It is absolutely very possible, regardless of how damaged or broken your relationship might be, even when it hurts just to say hi to your spouse. Perhaps you're in a marriage of this sort. One, I feel for you very much. I am sure that is an immense amount of difficulty and weight. Two, it can be healed. God is far more powerful than you know. Don't limit Him. Pray, pray, pray. Fast. Give alms. Do everything necessary. Make your priority loving God by the way in which you give of yourself to sanctify and to heal your marriage through your prayers and your Christian way of life and your sacrifices and your sufferings and the way that you accept them, etc., etc., etc. We'll talk much more about this specifically as we get more into the three goods. I was hoping to get a little bit farther today, but in this episode, we were not able to do so. So let me just wrap up this one part, then we will read Canon Law 1055, as I mentioned, we would do every episode and then we will close for the day. Love, as I said, is to will the good for the other. It is something born out of our free choice. The perfect image of the perfect love is the image of the crucifix. That is what we are shown there every time we walk into the Holy Catholic Church. How our groom, how our Lord, seeks not just some temporary relationship, but a new and everlasting relationship. Not just a contract with us, but a covenantal blood bond where two become one, where we are united to him and his humanity, which then enables us to be in union with divinity. He divinizes us by coming and taking on our lowly human nature. There is a reason why marriage in the church takes place at the altar. It is the place of sacrifice, love, is self-sacrifice. It is willingness to give of yourself for the sake of somebody else's good for them, not for what you get out of it, not for how it benefits you. Most people don't realize that when they sign up for marriage, they sign up for a lifelong sacrifice of self-gift, giving of yourself, reverencing God Almighty in the way in which you give of yourself and help the sanctity of your spouse. Another reason to begin a marriage at an altar is because of the Eucharist, as I said. This is the fullest meaning, the true gift of what we see in the image of the cross, the crucifix of Christ, we have and actually receive and participate in through Holy Eucharist. And therefore, it is Christ's perfect love and sacrifice given to his bride. The bride receives this love and is then nourished by it in order for us to continue to grow in union with our spouse, to continue to grow in perfect love of our spouse, to continue to live a self-sacrificial love for our spouse and with and in our spouse. Canon Law 1055, Part 1 says, The marriage covenant by which a man and a woman establish between themselves, remember, who are the ministers and the recipients of the sacrament? It is the man and the woman, the groom and the bride. And so, the marriage covenant by which a man and a woman establish between themselves a partnership of their whole life, indissoluble, and which, of its own very nature, is ordered to the well-being of the spouses, the good of the spouses, the good of fidelity, and the procreation and upbringing of children, the good of the offspring, has between the baptized, between baptized, has been raised by Christ the Lord to the diligent, to the dignity of a sacrament. It is a sacrament, lifelong, indissoluble. good of the spouses, good of fidelity, good of children, of offspring. May God richly bless you, Hopefully, this is helping you. Please come join us for our next episode where we will, once again, actually try to get into the three goods of marriage in a little bit more detailed way. Also, as we do so, we will speak about various practical elements of marriage, things that we encounter perhaps on daily life, and how, hopefully, we can kind of navigate our own marriages to a better, holier union in Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Blessed Virgin, I ask that you sanctify and purify through the graces that flow through your most immaculate heart and pure hands every marriage that is in the church, every marriage that is true and valid, every marriage that is to be an imitation of Christ and the bride, the church. We ask that you help to heal all of those that are suffering in marriages that feel and seem so broken. Help them to realize the strength of the sacrament. Help them to know the power of God and his ability to heal even the most disruptive, even the most destructive marriages. Help us. Hail, Holy Queen. You are our light, our sweetness, and our hope. We ask that you bring us to Christ, who is the light of the world, who is the salvation of every soul. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you all.